I was going to say, am I on? Good morning. Did I like, oh, there we go. Good morning. I was going to say, do you miss your pastor yet? But we keep hearing from him. He's not giving us time to miss him. Um, but no, we are in what, this is Sunday number six without, um, without Trent here with us. And uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really starting to feel it now, Matt. Uh, this morning when I was getting ready, I was like, okay, I've got to do announcements. I'm going to do catechism. I've got to lead a baptism later. I've got to preach. And then I remembered there was communion, and I was like, ooh. And then I was like, Trent's been doing all that stuff on his own for years, and has never complained about it. Uh, but no, thank you, Cameron, for doing those announcements for me this morning. Uh, one other quick thing before we get started on the message, um, just an update on the budget. It did pass unanimously. Uh, it was approved. So we're good to go on that. Thank you. Okay. Growing up, my parents sent me to a Christian school. And the older I get, the more thankful I am for that. And I appreciate uh, the things that I was taught there and I learned there. Uh, one of the things that they really tried to do was emphasize the Bible when disciplining. So if there was something that a kid did wrong, it wasn't just a, hey, knock it off, uh, like I do with my kids at school. Uh, it was a, hey, here's why you shouldn't do that. Here's what the Bible says about that behavior or those things that you're doing. And sometimes, 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 it went a little bit too far and bordered on legalism, but that's, that's a story for a different sermon. Um, but when I hear the word kind or kindness, my mind automatically goes one place. Second grade with a classmate named Scott. Now, when principal or teachers in my school caught people being unkind to each other, they really wanted us to understand what the Bible had to say about kindness. So, one time, Scott and I were arguing. I have no idea what it was even about at this point. Um, but I definitely remember the consequence for the unkind things that Scott and I were saying to each other, which was a consequence I saw many other kids have over the years. And that was Scott and I, at seven years old, had to hold hands, walk around the basketball court at recess, while loudly proclaiming Ephesians 4.32. And bear with me, because I only have it memorized in the King James Version. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God through Christ Jesus hath forgiven you. I will never forget that. And parents, I can tell you, if you're looking for a way to teach your kid to be kind, it was effective. Although I still am bringing it up now, and I have flashbacks every time I hear the word kind or hear this verse. So I'll let you decide if the potential emotional damage is worth it. <laughs> if you haven't figured out, we're continuing our series on the fruit of the Spirit today. Uh, and the fruit we're learning about is kindness. I promise I'm not going to make anybody hold hands and walk around the room loudly proclaiming scripture today. But... One question that was on my mind as I started preparing for this is, what is kindness? And I kept trying, as I kept trying to define it myself, I kept coming back to being nice. And I was like, ooh, I cringed every time because nice 
isn't a word that I let my fifth graders use when describing a character or when they're writing something because it's such a basic and simple word. Uh, so if I make them find better words, I also have to find better words. I have to practice what I preach, so to speak. And besides, if I preached a sermon and that was my main point was that you should be nice, that probably would be a little too short and I might get in some trouble. I think kindness, though, is one of those words that everybody's definition might be a little bit different, and it's something that you don't always think about what it means, but when you see it, when you see a kind act, you definitely know it, uh, and it's obvious. So I asked, I asked several friends and coworkers, family members, uh, what their definition of kindness was, just out of the blue. Some of them I caught off guard, like my wife. We were just sitting on the couch, and I was like, what does kindness mean? And she had to, I think she told me, being kind. <laughs> I said, what does it mean to be kind? Or what, what is kindness? And she said, being kind? <laughs> Not exactly helpful. Uh, but common themes, common themes in the answers uh, were being selfless, helping others, and the idea of doing something with no expectation of reciprocity, which were all really good um, ideas for kindness, and we're gonna see some of those as we flesh out what kindness means through a biblical lens. Because as Christians, that should be our goal, right? Is we wanna define it through a biblical lens. What does kindness look like according to God's word? Remember, the fruit of the spirit that we're studying are characteristics that we should have as Christians because the spirit is dwelling in us. They're characteristics of God himself. And so our standard should be the same as God's standard when it comes to kindness. Our kindness should imitate his. So to help us define what kindness should look like, we're going to look at the kindness of God himself today. We're gonna to focus on one passage in particular today, and that is uh, from Titus chapter three. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Titus chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen as we read them today. And if you need a copy of God's word, please stop by our first impressions desk at the end of the service. We would love to give you a copy of God's word. We're gonna be in Titus chapter three, uh, verses three through seven. If you're looking for Titus, it's after, it's after Second Timothy. Titus, I always feel like it's one of those books that I'm like, I know where it's at, but when I go to look for it in my Bible, it takes me a while, but it's after the Timothys. So Titus chapter three, and we're gonna read the whole section of scripture uh, first, and then we'll go back through and flesh it out a little bit. So Titus chapter three, verse three through seven. Paul writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a few things that I want us to notice about God's kindness today. The first 
comes from verse 3. And that's that God's kindness is extended to even his enemies. God's kindness is extended to his enemies. Look at that with me in verse 3 again. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul puts it a different way in Romans chapter 5. You can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, But in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes to the church in Rome, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not accepted him, you're automatically God's enemy, Uh, whether you think so or not, whether the world thinks so or not. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're automatically on the other side. And so despite our enemy status, God showed us kindness. How hard is that for us? It's easy for us to show kindness to people we already love, right? It's easy for me to be kind to my wife. I love Tanya. She is amazing. Uh, And she... uh, It's easy for me to be kind to her, right? To buy her flowers, to cook her dinner every day, um, to serve her, to help her with projects. I love doing that for her because I love her. It's not a big ask for me to help her. It's easy for me to be kind to my son to read, right? Because he's super cute uh, and he makes me smile. uh, And it's easy to be kind to him. It's easy for me to take care of him, even to change the poopy diapers, although I'll admit it's slightly harder sometimes at two o'clock in the morning when he's crying, but I do it because I love him. And my love for him causes me to want to do that. But... My question for us today is, who are the people you struggle to be kind to? Who are those people? Because if you want to know if you're being kind according to God's standard, look there. So who are they? Who are the people in your life, the people around you, or maybe even people you don't interact with, but people in the world that if you did interact with them, you would struggle to be kind to them? Who are those people? Let's flesh that out a little bit. I've got a couple of examples. Maybe it's just a certain type of person or a certain crowd uh, that makes you uncomfortable or that you don't connect with. Let me illustrate that a little bit. Probably like 10 years ago now, uh, I went with some of my family to a cash bash at a bar where I grew up. Um, It was like five minutes from the house I grew up in. Uh, The only way I could describe this bar, uh, the only words I could use is what's affectionately termed a honky-tonk. Now look at me. (laughs) If you've met me, I don't exactly yell honky-tonk, right? (laughs) Not, that's not, and I'm pretty sure Uh, As soon as we walked in, I looked around and I said to my cousin, these are not my people. (laughs) 
and I was very uncomfortable. Uh, they were more than rough, around the edge kind of people, and I really struggled to be kind and withhold judgment from them. I really, really struggled with that. Uh, I would hope now, I pray now, that I would do better many years later. Maybe for you, it's a different crowd that would be a struggle. Maybe for you, it would be a too loud Mr. Rogers dressing, socially awkward, baking, loving Harry Potter, reading fifth grade teacher who occasionally fills in when the pastor's away. Maybe that would be that crowd that you would struggle to be kind to. Could be. But it doesn't matter what the type is, right? Doesn't matter what the type is. What matters is whoever it is for you, do you and can you show them kindness? How about members of other faiths or even non-faiths? You're Mormon, Hindu, atheist, or Muslim neighbor, to mention a few specifically. Ones who may even dress differently than we're used to seeing because of some religious tradition that they hold to. What if they are hostile and unkind to you because of their faith? Can you still be kind to them? Maybe for you, it's that one guy at work. You know that guy. The one who's always sucking up to the boss or the one who's always leaving a mess in the microwave and not cleaning up after themselves or is stealing people's food from the refrigerator and doesn't tell anyone or maybe they're taking credit for things that you've done with the boss. Maybe the boss doesn't value you or the effort that you put in at work like you think they should. Are you kind to these people? Are you kind to that guy? How about your political enemies? Boy, if there's an arena in our country right now that could use a little kindness, it is politics. Oh boy. Are your words filled with kindness when you speak about the image bearers of Christ who happen to disagree with you on an issue or maybe they fall on the complete other side of the political spectrum. Now, kind words should go for anybody, right? You should speak with kindness to everybody, but I want us to think specifically about our political enemies because that seems to be a struggle point with a lot of people in our country today. You see, it's inconsistent for people who profess to be followers of Jesus to, on one hand, proclaim the gospel and the love of God and salvation, but then on the other hand, to speak ill about their enemies. James tells us that in James chapter three, verses nine through 10. James has a long section where he writes about the tongue and the dangers that you can get yourself into with your words. And when he's writing about the tongue in verse nine, chapter three, verse nine, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The kind of words that we choose to speak about others can show the attitude of kindness that we don't, that we do or don't have towards them. So are you able to speak kindly and treat those with with opposing views with kindness? 
couple more. How about someone who's wronged you in some way? Someone who's done you dirty. Someone who maybe hurt your feelings or cheated you some way or spread rumors that were untrue about you or threw you under the bus, so to speak. Can you treat them with kindness? Now, when I was planning this, I again, I put my wife on the spot a lot when I'm preparing. And again, out of the blue, I just said, babe, who's your enemy? Just while we were, she she was cross-stitching, I think, while I said that, so she wasn't expecting it at all. Um, And I just said, who's your enemy? Now, her first answer was Satan, which, yes, true. Although, I'm not sure that it's within our purview to have to be kind to Satan. I don't know, I'll have to check with Trent on that when he comes back. Don't think we're required to show kindness to Satan. After that, though, she said that her next immediate thought was, and it caught me off guard, but I think it's good. She said, myself. Oh, I found that interesting. Now, that could have come from her punk rock fandom days, because there's a song that came out when we were teenagers called My Own Worst Enemy. Uh, And so that may be why that came to her mind. Uh, But I do want to ask, Do you show kindness to yourself? I don't want it to turn into something self-centered, right? I don't want it to, you know, that you're being selfish. But are you kind to yourself? Is your internal dialogue, you know, the thoughts running through your head about yourself, is it kind? Because God was kind to you, so you're worthy of kindness, Or are you believing the lies that Satan tells you? That you're not worthy, that you're a failure, that you're unlovable? Because none of those things are true. Tanya definitely caught me off guard with that one, but I thought it was interesting enough to include in a list of enemies. But the point being here is that if you can't treat your enemy with kindness, you aren't exhibiting biblical, spirit-filled, Kindness. Let's continue. On into verse five and look at another aspect of God's kindness. I just want us to look at the very first part of verse five. Uh, So Titus chapter three, verse five. I'm just gonna read the first line here. Paul writes, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Pause. Pause. God chose to be kind to us not because of anything that we did, and he didn't expect anything in return. God's kindness is without expectation. God's kindness is without expectation. Now, there's two sides to that coin that I want us to see. First, it's that we didn't have to do anything for God to initiate his kindness to us. There was nothing that he needed us to do, right? He was, remember, he was kind to us while we were still his enemies. We didn't have to clean ourselves up. We didn't have to dress a certain way or talk a certain way or act a certain way for God to be kind to us. Do you have prerequisites for your kindness to others? Do I? Do you ever find yourself thinking, because I know I have, that somebody deserves the situation that they found themselves in, 
because of something they've done or the choices they've made. And that may be true, but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve kindness. Why should I help them when they won't help themselves? Are you putting stipulations on your kindness? I'll help them, I'll be kind to them if they apologize. If they quit drinking. If they stop hanging out with that person that makes them make bad decisions. If they stop making foolish financial decisions, then I'll be kind to them, then I'll help them. Now, I'm not saying that you should condone sin or that you shouldn't have a hard conversation with a brother or sister who's in sin and needs to repent. I'm not saying that at all. But are you requiring people to fix themselves before you'll extend kindness? Reminds me of that old saying of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's a very American thing, a very American mindset of people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. But... What happens if that person can't afford boots? What if their arms are occupied by something else that is of equal importance? Are you willing to buy them boots? Put them on for them? Tug on the bootstraps to help them up? That's God's kindness. The other side of that same no expectation coin is that he expected nothing in return for his kindness. No reciprocity. Now, he knew that there was absolutely nothing that we could give him that would equal what he was giving to us in kindness, right? There is nothing, no price that we could pay for God's kindness that would equal what he's given to us. And he's extended his kindness through the gospel to every human on the earth, and most people who hear it won't, didn't, or haven't even accepted it. They just ignore it. But he still offers it. He still extends it. Do you have expectations of reciprocity that somebody reciprocate kindness to you when you're kind to others? Do you hope for a quid pro quo kind of kindness, one where you get something for something and I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of kindness? I'll help you if you help me. Maybe you hope for recognition or praise. Feels good to be praised and recognized. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being recognized for what you do, but is that your motivation for being kind? And I'll admit I struggle with that one because I like words of affirmation. Uh, so I've constantly got to keep myself in check when it comes to my motivations that that's not what's motivating my actions and my words. Maybe you just hope that God will bless you because of your kindness to others. That's an easy trap to fall into. And other religions even have a phrase for it, right? They call it karma. You put good out into the world and good will come back to you. Have we taken that and applied it to our kindness? If I'm kind, if I'm helpful, if I'm generous, whatever it is to someone else, then God will bless me in return. So if our kindness shouldn't be motivated by an expectation of something in return, what should motivate it? Well, again, let's look at what motivates 
God's kindness. We're going to start back at the beginning of verse 3 and read Titus 3, 5, and 6. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So notice that one word there, but according to his own mercy. God's kindness is motivated by his mercy. God's kindness is motivated by his mercy. Now, when I first started to look at this verse and I saw that word and I was like, hmm, it doesn't fit for me because I was automatically going to the definition that I heard all of my life for the word mercy and that is God withholding punishment and judgment that I deserve for my sin. An idea of granting clemency. And as a kid, the picture, anytime I heard the word mercy, the picture that came to mind was of some guy on his knees with somebody about to behead him, and he's begging for mercy, and the the king, out of the goodness of his heart, says, okay, I won't. And that's partially true, because God's mercy can definitely mean God withholding his wrath for our sin. But just like a lot of words, depending on the context that a word is used in, it can have a slight shade of meaning. Other synonyms that might fit better with the context here would maybe mean pity or compassion. God's motivated to be kind to us because he pities us. He has a deep feeling of sorrow and compassion for our suffering. Suffering that we often bring on ourselves, by the way. God is kind to us because he sees us in our suffering, in our sorrow, in the muck, in the mire of life, in the sin that we're enslaved to. He sees his beautiful creation. And he sees us dealing with death and darkness, sin, pain, suffering, and he feels sorry for us. He has mercy on us, And so he is kind. Do you feel that same merciful compassion for people in those circumstances? Do I feel that? Am I motivated by the fact that God has blessed me beyond measure? That he's lifted me up out of the muck and mire of life? That he's given me new life? That he's showed me light and love and mercy? Do I see what God has done for me? And am I motivated then to be kind to others because of it? When I see others suffering, what's my default thought? Where does my mind go? Am I just grateful that it's not me? Then I stop there. Do I look for reasons why I think they're experiencing the suffering that they're experiencing? My mind definitely goes there sometimes. Or do I see them? Do I feel compassion? then search for ways that I can relieve their burden. Find ways that I can lift them up. Look for opportunities to serve them. That's what God's kindness has done for us. So, if God's motivated by his mercy to show us kindness, 
What does that kindness look like? Let's continue in Titus 3. Look with me again at Titus 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to read those same verses again. There's a lot in those two verses. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, so he wasn't expecting anything from us, but according to his own mercy, it was his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here in the rest of verse 5 and through the end of verse 6, we see that God's kindness is an action. God's kindness is an action. He took action to be kind to us. God's kindness specifically, we're going to look at in a minute in the form of the gospel, but the action, um, kindness can take all kinds of forms of action. Perhaps it's the action of giving money or giving time or giving resources or the action of speaking love and encouragement to someone. Those are all important. As I was thinking about this, I immediately went to, though, the thoughts and prayers type of kindness that we so often see. Our kindness has to go beyond thoughts and prayers. Now, I'm not saying that prayer is not important. Don't hear me say that. But what I'm asking is, when you comment and say thoughts and prayers, is that backed up by time spent praying? Is there something that you can do to relieve someone's burden? You know, people in need of a kind act, people who are in tragedy or in crisis who are struggling, often don't even know where to ask or how to ask or ask. They don't even know what to ask for when they need help. But can you see their situation and identify just one thing, a meal, a phone call, a letter of encouragement, something that you could do that would help relieve their burden. If God is our example, what action did God take specifically? Well, there has been no greater kindness ever shown than that shown in the gospel. None. God saw his creation in the miserable, pathetic, pitiful enemy state that we put ourselves into, he knew there was no chance for reciprocity. He knew we had nothing to offer him. What could we give to the creator and ruler of the universe? Nothing. Nothing that would even compare. He saw us. He knew we could do nothing to help ourselves and that we had nothing to offer. And he had mercy on us. He felt compassion for us. So he took action to help us. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take our place, to pay the price for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of the world, to atone for our transgressions, to bring us light and love, to save us from our miserable, pitiful condition. Again, I say there's no greater kindness than the gospel. And if that's the case, there's no kinder act that you can do for someone than to share the gospel with them. 
What's the kindest thing you can do for someone who is struggling, who's hurting, who you pity, who you have compassion for? Yes, please meet their needs. Meet their physical needs, meet their emotional needs, meet their social needs, whatever they are, please feed them, clothe them, shelter them, love them, encourage them. Yes, I affirm that, please. But the kindest thing you can do is to take action to share the gospel with them. To share with them the same light and the same love, the same compassion, the same mercy, the same gospel that was at one point shared with you. The same gospel that brought you out of your miserable condition, the same gospel that saved you, the same gospel that you've been commanded to share with them. One more thing that I want us to see about God's kindness this morning. In Titus chapter 3, verse 7, follow along with me as I read. Paul writes, So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The last thing that I want us to see about God's kindness is that God's kindness gives hope. God's kindness is hope-giving. Now, meeting someone's physical or emotional needs is important, and that can give them hope for a while. But we know, you know, that the only lasting hope, the only way to offer them lasting hope is to give them the gospel. And recognizing, as God did, that we can't expect anything in return. We can't expect them to clean their act up first, to fix themselves. We can't even expect that they will accept it. We can't even expect that they'll be kind to us in return when we share the gospel. All we can do is offer them the same kindness that God has offered to us. That same hope-giving kindness. So, how are you doing with kindness? With God's kindness as our model to examine our own lives in regard to it. Are we exhibiting a spirit-filled kindness? Are we being kind according to God's standards? Maybe we're being kind according to the world's standards. Maybe we even have our own individual standards for who we'll be kind to and how we'll show kindness. God's standard requires that it be for everyone, even our enemy. It must be given without expectation, It must be motivated by mercy. It is an action, and it should be hope-giving. One way you can examine your own kindness is to ask this question. Would I want God to apply my standard of kindness to me? Phrased differently, would you want God to show kindness to you according to the standard with which you show kindness to others. If God used your standard of kindness, would you receive his kindness? Would those you love receive his kindness? Boy, I'm sure glad he uses his standard and not mine. When I'm preparing to preach, I always seem to come back to 
a question when I'm trying to make application, and it came from a guide, a sermon writing guide that Trent gave me a while ago. And it's a what would it look like if question. And then insert whatever the topic is. I think I like it because I know that we're never meeting God's standards. At least I'm never meeting God's standards. If you are, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, At least not in our own power. And these kinds of questions help me keep that in perspective. They help me recognize uh, that there's always room for improvement. So I ask you today, what would it look like, Zion, if we were kind according to God's standards? How would that affect our church? Would we be more welcoming to visitors and guests? When's the last time you took it upon yourself to go talk to a guest that you've never seen before and extend them kindness in that way? Would our room here be filled every week with people that we have spent the previous week sharing that hope-giving kindness too? Perhaps. How would it affect our community if we were consistently applying God's standard to our own kindness? Would we make the gospel more attractive to the people in our community? as Paul commands us to do in Titus chapter two? Would we be a beacon of hope for those in our community who are struggling? Would others know wherever we went that we were followers of Jesus because we were exhibiting the kindness of God? How would it affect our country if believers were showing kindness according to God's standard? How would that affect the poor and the marginalized people in our country? How would that change the discourse that we have with other groups of people that we may disagree with in our country? How would that change the reputation of the church? I'm not talking just our church, but the church. Notice I didn't say the reputation of Jesus because I think that the world, even the world, I think, has at least a neutral to probably even positive view of the man, Jesus. It's the church who has screwed things up over the years. That's on us. How would us acting kind according to God's standard change that? As the worship team comes, I'll remind us that uh, when we have our next song, that the care group leaders come front, uh, come up front and be ready to pray with people. And if uh, we've got a baptism today, praise God. Uh, so... Uh, We'll ask that uh, people who need to get ready for that, get ready for that. If you're finding yourself falling short, not meeting God's standard related to kindness or any of the fruit, because remember, as we saw before, that they are a package deal, right? It's not the fruits of the Spirit. You can't pick and choose the fruits off the tree, right? It is the fruit of the Spirit, If you find yourself struggling, well, you might be asking yourself, what do I do? How do I fix it? (coughs) Excuse me. Well, again, these are the fruit of the Spirit. If you aren't walking in step with the Spirit of God, you won't exhibit the fruit the way you should. 
just not going to happen. So as we examine the kindness we show others, let us use that to help us see where we're out of step with the Spirit. Then take the necessary steps, the necessary action to fix that. The way to be more in step with the Spirit isn't as hard as it might seem. One of the playlists that I listen to with Reed sometimes while we're playing has a bunch of songs, it's like 100 best Christian songs for kids or something, and it has almost all of the songs that I remember singing as a little kid in junior church, <clears throat> and so it's really nostalgic for me. But holy cow, sometimes also really convicting. Uh, there's two especially that when they come on, I'm like, ooh. Now they are childish, but they are in fact made for children, so. But the two that especially get me, now I'm not Angelo, I know he broke out some 90s boy band music last week. <laughs> and I'm going to try, but it's not going to be pretty. Uh, the first one, seriously, prepare yourselves, because I am not a singer. <laughs> like, my wife and Reed hear me sing, and my students at school hear me sing, because I don't care what they think. Um, anyway, we're losing the point. <laughs> we're losing the point. I digress. Uh, if you're trying to get more in step with the Spirit, these two songs... Every time I hear them, I'm like, ooh, how am I doing? The first one is the one that goes, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. Angel, anyone know? Grow, grow, grow. Pretty simple, right? Oh, don't applaud that, ooh, no. Uh, <laughs> the other one, uh, is the song, and this one really got me the other day. Uh, it's called It's Me, O Lord. Anyone know that one? It's Me, O Lord. The lyrics say, It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Walking more in step with the Spirit starts with that, friends. It does. Read God's Word. Spend time in prayer, in fellowship with your Creator. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. So if you're finding yourself struggling with the fruits that we're learning about, get back to those basics. Spend time in God's Word. Draw close, or pray, draw close to God, and know him better. I'm going to pray in just a second. When we're done with that, Angelo's going to come up to lead us in communion. Uh, so if you don't have, if you didn't receive a, a cup and cracker on the way in, could you raise your hand so that people from the First Impressions team could come around while I'm praying to do that? Dear Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that it is as simple as that. If we're not in step with the Spirit, Lord, the, the action that we need to take is simple. It's to spend time with you. The only way to become more like you is to get to know you better. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this morning, we would examine ourselves, Lord, myself included, I, you 
spoke to me the whole time I was writing this. Lord, I pray that we would measure ourselves according to your standard, not the world's standard, not our own standard, but your standard for kindness and for every other fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be walking in step with you. And where we're not, convict us. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to begin our communion with a couple of scriptures. Uh, one is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you receive and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For the delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. So that was Paul. And the next one is Isaiah 53, 5. Ultimately, Jesus sacrificial death on the cross perfectly fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 5, which states, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Communion is for any person who believe and trust in the Lord, alone for his or her salvation. Right now, I would like for you to examine yourselves, go to God, confess your sins, even confess the sins that you're not aware of. And I will give you a moment to do that. At this time, we thank God for the bread which represents his body broken for us. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So take the cup which represents his blood that was shed for us. 
Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. you have done for us please respond to this next song if the care group leaders can come up if anyone needs prayer
shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. No wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down, coming after me. excited to have filled the tank this week. We have Miss Allie Poor and her dad joining us in the tank, uh, coming to be baptized today. Uh, Allie has made the decision to be baptized uh, after much discussion and conversation with mom and dad, making sure she understands the step that she's taking here. Uh, and she even, it's exciting, she got to do it while Big Brother's home, so that's exciting. Praise God for that. Uh, so, Allie, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you ready? Okay. Allie, have you made the decision to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow him and serve him for the rest of your life? Yes. Yes. Praise God. Then it is our pleasure and joy to baptize you as our sister in Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and risen again to walk in new life. your name you will always be much more to me 
Every day I wrestle with the voices that keep telling me I'm not right. But that's all right, cause I hear a voice and he calls me redeemed. When others say I'll never be in love. And greater is the one living inside of me than he who is living in the world. In the sent. Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. 
For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, but he's the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Living by the Spirit's power. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of a life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified.